Luke chapter 22. I'm going to read to you today verse 31 through 34, just a few verses. It's really important that um, as we look at what we've been studying, spiritual warfare, that we sort of bring it to a close. Next week, I'm going to start the book of Mark, and we're going to go as long as it takes. We're going to go all the way through the gospel of Mark together. And that's our commitment. So you cannot hold me to how long that will take. You just know where we're going. You know where the train's going and then where it stops. It's chapter 16 in the book of Mark. All right. But I um, was getting on a plane going to Idaho, Idaho last week. And as I was getting on the plane, there was a scripture that was dropped into my heart. Now, I'm not trying to say everything's the Lord, but sometimes when that happens, the first thing that I'll do is say, was this for me or was it for those that I'm going to share it with in, my, in our family? Because I have a microphone in my face four to five times a week. And so I have to ask the question, was this word for me or was it for our church? And I was on my way to another church to speak there. And so I felt like the Holy Spirit really brought it to my attention that this is actually meant to close our spiritual warfare series. I've been talking about spiritual warfare for a period of time. I've talked to you about the nature of spiritual warfare. I've talked to you about the enemies, which are the flesh, the devil or demonic power and the world system. And I've also talked to you about the weapon that God has given us in the word of God. And now I want to talk to you. My message is entitled The Refinement of Warfare. The Refinement of Warfare. We face battles in our life and it can be easy to lose sight of what this is all about. Why is there a warfare? Why do we face battles? Why does the demonic spirits and devil want to attack us? What is this really all about? Sometimes we can sort of lose track of all that, and I hope to bring some clarity to that this morning. We know from Luke chapter 22, the context here is that Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, and this is the final week of Jesus's earthly ministry. It's actually on Thursday evening, just six hours before Jesus was betrayed, and he was sharing a final Passover meal with his disciples, the very same moment that we reflected on while we received communion today. During that meal, some of his disciples had a dispute among each other, just like the disciples often do. This is the very last hours of Jesus's earthly life, and they're having a dispute about who the greatest among them was. I think that's sort of a funny thing, just kind of funny to me. And Jesus, as he usually does, sets the record straight. He corrects them. And then he looks at Simon Peter and he makes this comment. It's just right at the same moment, he looks at Simon Peter and he says this, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus says to him, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. I've read this passage many times, but I saw something here that I think is not only worthy to share with you, but I believe it fits in with this spiritual warfare mindset that we're cultivating over the last couple months. I just have three observations from the text. And the first one is this in verse 31, I would tell you today, and I'm actually directing this at us because I believe I can, I can do that, even though it was contextual for Peter and his, and the disciples of Jesus. But the first point is Satan is pursuing you. I know that's not encouraging. And I know you don't want to know that. 
but the word of God is clear about it. Satan is pursuing you. Jesus begins his conversation by looking at Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, when he repeats himself or the name, you may have heard this before, but it's emphasizing how important what I'm about to say is. I need you to listen, Peter. I need you to understand what I am about to say. It is crucial for you to get this information. Jesus doesn't talk a long time. He doesn't have a lot to say, but what he has to say is potent. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. What does this mean? First, it means that the enemy needs permission to attack followers of Jesus. Our enemy cannot destroy at will. Demonic power needs permission because if they didn't, they would just kill people. That's how it would work. You may not have thought about this verse before, about how the enemy, in order to attack us, which he does, for demonic spirits to come against us and and confront us, which they do, they need permission to do that. And this is not the sole example in scripture where this happens. We read the same thing in the book of Job. In Job chapter one and verse six, I'm gonna read a few verses here. We see in, in a very similar way that Satan demands permission to come, to come after this man and confront Job. It says here in verse six, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I don't know if you've ever read this before, but I'm not entirely comfortable with this passage. (laughs) I personally don't really like that the Lord is talking to Satan about us. It's not a Christmas card worthy. It's not a a theology that we always have. Some try to fit it into a box. It doesn't fit into all of my theological boxes that Satan is standing before Yahweh God and and having a conversation. Satan says, I've been going back to and fro of the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then Satan said to the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you not blessed the work of his hands and his possessions that have increased in the land? But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. This passage should make you a little uncomfortable because you too are a person. (laughs) Job is a human being. He's not an angel. Uh, He's not in the company of the Lord. He's a human being on the earth. And God and Satan are having a conversation about a person. And here it says that Satan is demanding permission. He's actually indicting God. He's indicting Job, but he's also indicting God. You've blessed him and you've protected him. And if you take away that blessing and if you take away that protection, you watch what this blameless man will do. He will curse you to your face. All you got to do is take away all that he has. And the minute you do that, he is not the servant that you think he is. And so the Lord says, game on, essentially. 
All that he has is in your hands. And if you know the story, basically the enemy goes and takes everything from Job and Job still blesses God. And then Job is allowed to touch his physical body and for him to suffer. And as he does that, Job still blesses God. Now, when you follow the story, Job's theology is not accurate because not one time does he bring up the enemy. He blames God for everything that happens to him. He actually admits things like he has suicidal thoughts. I wish that I was never born, he says. I curse the day of my birth, he says. In his suffering, like when we suffer, Job says things that you normally won't say. When we go through pain and suffering, we end up thinking things that we never thought and saying things that we've never said. And that really is the story of Job. The story of Job is not an accurate theological perspective of God. In fact, Job blames God the whole time. And they have wrong theology and his friends come and try to comfort him and it only lasts a week. And after that week, they indict Job again and again and again. Something's wrong with you or you wouldn't suffer. Something's happening. You're doing something that we don't see or nobody knows about because if, if, you were, if you were just doing right and righteously, this would never happen. You would never go through suffering. That was their theology. And that's actually a theology that exists today, that if you're doing what is right, and if you love God, and if you're blessing him with all of your life, and if you're really surrendered, you'll never go through suffering. Friend, that is a lie. That's just not the truth. That's why so many people who call themselves Christians are disillusioned because they thought when they got on the Jesus train and started following Jesus, that it was only leading to bliss and all the way was a party. It is leading to our eternal home. It is leading to eternal blessing. It is leading to perfection. But along the way, we are going to suffer. Don't say amen because you want it to be true. Say amen because it is true. And so Job says things about God that aren't true. He says things like, you give and you take away. We made a song out of it. You give and you take away. I don't know how you sing that song happy. I will never sing that song. You guys will sing it and I'll sit there like this. Lord, I just pray for everybody in this room right now that in the mighty name of Jesus, you would adjust our theology. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> There's some songs I won't sing. I'm just being honest with you. Some songs are old covenant songs. I won't sing them because Jesus has come and made, made a new covenant with us. Sometimes we're singing a song or praying a prayer and we're asking for something that he's already done. I never say, pour down your mercy. He's already poured out all the mercy he's going to pour down in Jesus Christ. Now, I won't give you my theology on worship today, but I could and I would love to. We've got to make sure that we're celebrating and singing unto God in context of what he's actually done. Not asking him, he can't give more mercy than he's given in Jesus Christ, amen. But he actually indicts, uh, he indicts God. Job has a wrong perspective. You give and you take away. The enemy is taking away from Job right now. Yes, God allowed it. He's the secondary, he, he's the, he's the, there's a primary cause and there's a secondary cause. And it's a very important because Job has no theology for the enemy at all. He has no understanding that what's attacking him is not God, but it's the enemy. But God is using the attack of the enemy to do something in Job. And he also does the same thing in the life of Peter. He allows the attack to bring about a refinement that would otherwise not happen. But we know this, that the enemy needs permission to attack our lives. And God does not always give it to him. 
but sometimes he does. So when we're in a battle, we have to recognize that there is a greater purpose than just fighting. There is a greater purpose than just surviving. There is something on the other end of the battle that God is going after. And we need to align ourselves with what God is after in that whole situation. The second part of this, when we look at Satan pursuing us, is the enemy wants to absolutely destroy followers of Jesus. What does it mean that Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat? Well, in Jesus's day, they would take the gathered wheat and bring it to a threshing floor. And sometimes they would beat the wheat on the threshing floor and they would take it. Typically, women would take it and they would put it into a sieve. And I don't know if you look this up, you'll see they have to vigorously shake the wheat in this sieve. I mean, it, it's a it's quite a shaking. It's just, and usually women would do this. Men would gather and women, women would um, separate the wheat from all the other chaff and the debris. The point of sifting was to get all the debris out. It was to get all of the chaff out. And when that process was over, you would be left with the wheat. So Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Satan wants to shake your life. He wants to vigorously shake your life. But what ends up happening, and I love the way this is worded because there's a play on it. While Satan wants to shake our life, what it will actually do is refine our, our life so that we look more like Jesus. So if, if the Lord allows the enemy to shake our life and to sift our life, what will come out of that is we will be better on the other end if we align ourselves with Jesus Christ. We have to understand what the war is actually about. The enemy is trying to occupy this space. And the war is over three things. The first thing that the battle is always over and when we're confronting the enemy or he's attacking us, the battle is over our conversion. He wants to stop us coming to Christ. If he loses that battle, then it's over our transformation. He wants to stop us becoming like Christ. And as we are being sanctified and becoming more like Jesus, we can't help but share about Jesus because we've got joy, amen? We've got peace like a river in our soul. And the enemy doesn't want peace to flow out of you. The enemy doesn't want joy to flow out of you. The enemy doesn't want Jesus to come out of you. And so he's invested in distraction and destruction. And he's invested in the sifting so that we would be completely consumed with the attack. And that destruction and that distraction will take us away from the purpose of Jesus in our life to make us more like him. And ultimately the third component or the third aspect of what the war is always over is that our purpose of bringing Jesus to people and people to Jesus. Our conversion, our transformation, and our purpose of bringing the gospel of Jesus to people's lives because the enemy knows that when we advance with the gospel, that more people come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, and you know he doesn't want that. And so if he can stop the message bearers from bringing the message, he absolutely will try to do that. And this is what the battle is over, but sometimes... We forget because we're battling and we're struggling and we're going through something, we can get consumed with the pain and we can get consumed with the suffering and we can get consumed with the difficulty. Am I talking to human beings today? We can get consumed and we forget what the battle is over. And when you forget what the battle is over, you lose your joy, you lose your peace, you lose your understanding of why you would fight, why you would be resilient, 
why would you, you would stand up, why you would get up and pray, why you would press in in those moments because we know that there is something on the other end. We know that there is something when we come out of that tunnel that is brighter and that is better and that is at the hand of God. We know that because the scriptures tell us. Here we have, we, we understand that the enemy is pursuing us and he wants to destroy our lives but that does not compare to what Jesus is doing. And my second point today is Jesus is praying for you. And if Jesus is praying for you, it's more powerful than Satan pursuing you. Look what it says here in verse 32. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail and that you, when once you have turned again, you will strengthen your brothers. But Peter says to him, Lord, with you, he just doesn't even listen to Jesus. Jesus prefaces this thing. Simon, Simon, listen up, man. He says, Lord, I am ready to go to prison and to death. I am your ride or die. Amen. You're going to go into the grave. I'm going to jump in there with you. You'll never be able to see me not by your side. And Jesus says, I say to you, Peter, I mean, this is my version. That ain't true. The rooster will not crow today until you've denied three times that you even know me. Peter's profession of faith could not be further from the truth of what is about to take place. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew what Peter was about to do. And so he was trying to help him. He was trying to equip him. He was trying to prepare him. Jesus did not need Peter's confession of loyalty. Really, it was a disloyalty that was about to take place. He needed him to know that when you fail, you are going to fail. When you fail, I want you to know that I've already prayed for you. I want you to know that I've already seen that you're gonna fall, but I've prayed you right back up. I want you to know, Peter, that I see the failure that's coming that is inevitable, but I have prayed for you. Peter couldn't stop long enough to even hear that Jesus said, I've already prayed for you. I've already prayed for you. God allowed the shaking in Peter's life to refine him. And we see why in this passage. Look at the pride of Peter. Jesus tells him that the enemy has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And Jesus does not say, and I stopped him from having it. Jesus does not tell him, I didn't grant it. He says the opposite. I have prayed for you. I'm going to pray you through it. I'm not going to stop the enemy from sifting you. That's another way we could read this. I'm not gonna stop the sifting, but I'm gonna pray you through this. He's gonna refine Peter through that. The warfare is gonna be useful in Peter's life because we can see his pride, his pride that says, Lord, I'm gonna be right by your side. I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna not be there. I'm always gonna be there. I'm always gonna be the one. I'm loyal to you. You know that, Lord, and I just wanna make sure that you know that and I'm gonna say it to you right now again. I'm there, Lord, I'm with you. But Jesus is saying something different. He refines us. Look what James chapter one and verse two says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I wanna tell you today that your loyalty to Jesus is going to be tested, your faith is going to be shaken. And this is a warfare that we all will face. All of us will face warfare. And I, I, I don't, this is kind of a weird thought, but you love it when I share it. So I don't, at least in my head, that's what I think. So let me live there. Every now and again, you get something in the mail and 
like some new place or new product is being sold or a new place has a special and it says free trial period. I'm like, there is no trials that are free. Amen. I'm, <laughs> I, I read that and I rebuke it in the name of Jesus. There's no, a trial will always, is that just a weird, it is, uh, but a trial will always cost you something. But if you are walking with Jesus, that trial will refine you. And that's exactly what James says. James says, count it all joy when you face trials. He didn't say be joyful because you want the trial. He says, count it all joy because you know something that other people don't know, that God is gonna give you endurance. And endurance is needed so that you can be brought unto completion. Isn't that the exact same thing that Jesus said to Peter? He said, I am praying for you that your faith would not fail. That terminology would mean that you would not fail completely and totally, but that you would get to the point of in your failure, well, I prayed you would turn again, that you will not completely fail. And that's what James is saying. James is saying we need endurance, which is why we can have joy because when God gives us endurance, he's not just gonna get us out of something, he's gonna help us to get through it. And when we get through it, we're stronger as a result of it. So all of the suffering in my life and all the difficulty that I face actually makes me stronger because I'm more surrendered to Jesus. And that's the message for those of us that are in pain right now. I think it's a profound thing that Jesus is praying, but he's not praying for Peter's protection. He's not praying for Peter to have a hedge put about him. Now, I'm not saying you should never pray that because I pray with some of you and you say, Lord, we pray for a hedge of protection. In our minds, we're thinking, even though you didn't let Job have that, even though Peter didn't get that, Lord, we pray for that right now. (laughs) I'm messing with you today, okay. Satan's indictment was the reason that he's serving you is because you have actually protected him and you have a hedge about him. And that's really sometimes our theology, isn't it? See, and here's what he wants to do. He wants to show us that no matter what we go through, he's not just trying to protect us, he's trying to perfect us. You understand, he's not just trying to get us out of it, he's trying to, he's trying to do something inside of us as we go through it. This is what Jesus wants to do. The plan of Christ is to make us like Christ. Romans chapter eight and verse 28 says, all things work together for good. It does not say that God causes all things to happen. It says God causes all things that happen to work for good. There's a big difference. God causes all things to work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, what's his purpose? He tells us in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There is no greater purpose that God is about in our lives than to make us like Jesus. Because when we are like Jesus in the way we speak, in the way we live, in the way we think, in the way we act, he can put us anywhere and trust us with what he wants to do because we're gonna respond like Christ. And so this is what the father is like. The father, when he spoke in the New Testament, he would say this, Whenever he saw his son and there was a point of obedience, he'd say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And whenever the father sees the son manifested in our lives, it brings a smile to his face and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The father, whenever he sees the manifestation of the son, this is what he is after and this is what changes the world. 
Friend, your battle, our battles, our struggles, our trials, our temptations, all the things that we're facing is something that God will use to facilitate something greater that we always can't see in the midst of the battle. We can't see how this is making us stronger. We can't see how this is making us more like Jesus. We can't see how this is making us a prayer warrior. We can't see how this is making us a better parent. We can't see how this is giving us more integrity. We may not be able to see what is happening. And sometimes we are actually praying the opposite of what Jesus is doing. Lord, get me out of this. Lord, protect me from this. And he wants us to know I'm praying for you. He wants us to know I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you would rise out of the failure and become the faithful. I'm praying that you would, while you might lose a battle, you'll win the war. I'm praying, Peter, that you would get up and become a new man and you would be restored and go help, help and restore the wounded warriors with a greater humility. Look at Peter, he's full of pride. He doesn't even listen to Jesus. Jesus, I'll be with you. No, 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 stop, Jesus, don't even do that. Remember when he says, I think it's Matthew 16 or 17, and Jesus is telling them that he has to go to the cross. And Peter says, may it never be, Lord, may it never be, it's not true. My theology does not allow for you to go to the cross and suffer, okay? So Lord, stop talking about it. It's not gonna happen. And Jesus looks him dead in the face and says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in your mind the things of God, for you are dwelling in the thoughts of man. Get behind me, Satan. Sometimes our mindsets are satanic in seed form. Sometimes the things we're saying or hoping for are actually playing right into the hands of the enemy. Why? Not just because we're following Satan, but because we're consumed with the battle, we're consumed with the mindset, we're consumed with the thing that's in front of us instead of realizing there's something beyond the battle that we're fighting for. See, what we're fighting for is for us to be more like Jesus. What we're fighting for is people in our world to know Jesus. What we're fighting for is for our kids to rise up and to be strong. What we're fighting for is the people around us to experience his great and glorious love. What we're fighting for is something greater than just the fight itself. And so the warfare is facilitating a refinement inside of us. And Jesus is praying us through. You might say to me today, you say, well, Ben, are you saying that Jesus is praying for me and not just Peter. And I'm glad you asked that question today. And my answer to you is yes. And the Bible says that in Romans chapter eight and verse 31. Listen to this passage. This is Paul speaking to the Roman church. He says, what then shall we say to these things? These are all difficult things, bad things that are happening. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus. It is he who died, yes, rather was raised. And he's at the right hand of God, also interceding for us. Have you ever thought about that? Look what Paul says. It says that Jesus didn't just ascend into heaven, take a seat and chill out until he returns, as Acts chapter two, verse says, and times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord until he returns. He's retained in the heavens until the second coming. He didn't just sit down and take a breather. He sat down, he looked over at the father and he began to intercede for his church. He began to intercede for the people so that you and I would be strengthened and we would restore others. See, what he said to Peter was actually the position that he was about to take upon his ascension. It says that Jesus, 
Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for you and for me. Did you know today that Jesus Christ is praying for you? Did you know that whatever you're going through right now, Jesus has a prayer for you? Did you know that you're not alone in what you're going through today, that Jesus is praying you through the tunnel, that you're gonna be brighter on the other side? Isn't that incredible news today? Jesus Christ is praying for us. We don't have to fear when we know that Jesus has prayed a prayer. Jesus has prayed a prayer. He wanted Peter to understand that, and Peter would have to confront that later on in his life. See, Peter on the day of Pentecost gets up and he experiences the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. He gets up to explain based on Joel chapter two, what is happening right there. He said, this is that which was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Even in those days, I'll pour forth of my spirit and they all shall prophesy. And verse 14, he drops down and says, and all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter gets up and says all this. You know what I think? And this is just, um, this is my theory, okay? You can disagree with me and still go to heaven on this one. All right, you don't have to agree with this. But I think that Jesus turned to Peter in Luke 22 and said this to him specifically because I think Peter won the argument that was just happening before Jesus said it. You remember what happened the moment before Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon? It says a dispute arose among the disciples as to who was the greatest. And I think Mr. Water Walker won that one. I think Mr. Mount of Transfiguration was pulling out all his cards, putting them on the table. Were you on the mountain? Were you, 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 you? Most of you weren't, only the other two. But who walked on the water, baby? This guy. Don't talk about the second or third step. The first step was gold. First step was gold. I've been trying it in the mikvah ever since. You know, I've been trying it. None of you did that. I'm the water walker. I think Peter won the argument about who was the greatest because he was putting all his cards. Now, this is my theory. And Jesus looks at him in the midst of that conversation, in the midst of his pride and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you. That word you is plural. So Jesus is actually saying it to all the disciples. But then Peter is now negotiating with Jesus and he's saying, Lord, I, I, I'm, I'm always gonna be by your side. You know that, of course you, you know that. I'm ready to go to both prison and, and to death. And, and then he's speaking to him specifically. But Peter, listen, you need to hear what I'm trying to say. All the disciples are gonna get sifted, but Peter gets some special treatment because he has pride. And he's the same guy that gets up on the day of Pentecost and begins to preach. And 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus. And he's in the midst of those other disciples. What happened from the time of Jesus's conversation with him and this pride that was so evident in his life to the time when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost? What happened? Humility happened. Humility happened. Because when we're going through a battle and when we're facing difficulty and when we fail and we will at times, when we fall, we have to understand that it's not in our places of strength that Jesus is most gonna use us. It's in our places of weakness and humility where we look up to God, the one that can when we can't, the one that has when we don't have. When we look up to God and we humble ourselves, the grace of God unloads on us. 
It says he gives grace to the humble. Humble people are honest. Humble people can admit they have a need. Humble people can confess their need for Jesus Christ. Not just initially, but in an ongoing way. I think the grace of God unloaded on his life and displaced his pride. And now in humility, he's pointing to Jesus the right way, a more accurate way, as it were. And that warfare that he went through refined him to be more who God wanted him to be. Amen. Did you know today that the warfare refines you? Are we partnering with this prayer over our lives? The final thing I want to say to you today is, or ask you a question, really. What is Jesus praying over your life right now? I want to make this direct to you. You can't say to me, well, I'm not going through warfare. Well, if you're not yet, you will. It's guaranteed. Jesus even said, in this life, you will have trouble. It's the same word that James used, trials of many kinds. In this world, you will have trouble. Some is of the hand of the enemy. Some is just life. It says it rains on the just and the unjust just the same. Some things happen because they're going to happen. Loss and difficulty and the sins of others. Sometimes that's the storms that we're facing. But other storms do come from the enemy. And we need to know that no matter where the warfare comes from in our lives, we know what Jesus is doing in the midst of it. See, when you know that and you're going through something, it doesn't make you excited about the trial, but it does excite you that this is not all that there is and there's something greater that's coming. And that's you and I emerging into these Christ-like people that are more loving and are more patient and are more kind and are more evangelical and more generous and all that Jesus is becomes what we are. I go through trials. I've probably had three significant wars in my life of the hand of the enemy that I'm aware of. Maybe more that I'm not aware of, but I know of a couple. Some of you have gone through more than I have. I, I recognize that today. But all of it's being used for the same purpose as far as Jesus is concerned. For me, I, I can tell you that when I go through a time where, and I have gone through a time, not to make this about me, but I've gone through a time where I've been indicted for everything you can imagine to the point where it reaches my dinner table and the mouths of my children because they hear rumors. Rumors, I've had three significant times in my life where lies and rumors have spun around, things that I couldn't control. And the thing is, is that there's a part of me that wants to set the record straight, right? There's a part of me that wants to start name dropping. And I could. I mean, I've got dirt on a lot of people, amen. That's the thing, isn't it? Pray for your pastor. You know, I didn't, I'm not Catholic. I didn't take a vow for that confessional booth. Just letting you know, I'm just joking. You can trust me. But I, I've had times in my life and, and this last couple of years, lies, rumors, outright bold lies have circulated. And it's one thing to get like, you know, Pastor Ben is seven foot tall. I mean, that lie is just a dumb one. I don't care about that. I'm like, yeah, of course, I should have made the NBA. It's right. But the lies that start to indict your character, those are the ones that go deep into my core. The ones that say like, you're a charlatan, you're a hired hand. Really? I mean, that's, that's my inner, that little person on my shoulder. Really? <laughs> the flesh in me sort of just, oh, you know, like when you, and you relate to this, when you give yourself to wanting to serve people, you could do other things, but you give yourself and, and, you're, and you're trying your best. You're giving what you have. You're not a perfect person, but you're giving what you have. And the rumors come. 
You're not being honest. You're not telling the truth. You're just putting on a show, all those things. And we're all flesh and blood. When those things, they get something about that gets to my core. It goes right, it's like a sword. It goes right into me. When somebody even suggests that I'm not being honest or somebody even suggests that I'm misstewarding or mishandling something that I deem precious, that I deem precious, and they mischaracterize me, something about that goes deep to my core. And I would suggest, I would say the same is probably true for you. And it's in those places where you go, God, you know, justify me, vindicate me. That's what your word says. And you want to do it yourself. And sometimes you try, right? Sometimes you try. You want to set the record straight. You want to get things right. But this thing starts to plague your soul. I'll tell you what happens. It's the, I've, ta I've taught this before at our church. It's the reason I receive communion every service. I receive communion five times a week. I don't wait for once a month. I do it five times a week. And I pray Psalm 19, Psalm 27. And I pray for those. I bless people that I know about that have said these things. I bless them. I pray for their families to be blessed. I pray for their hearts to be on fire. I pray that their finances would be blessed. I pray that, the, that they would love Jesus more than they've ever loved him. I don't pray, Lord, set them straight. I pray, I pray blessing over them because we have to move in the opposite spirit. You may never get a chance to set the record straight with people. I'm not reconciled with a number of people. As much as it depends on me, I've tried. But I'll tell you, you go through wars and the enemy wants to use that and manipulate your soul. He wants to manipulate you and he wants to make it about that thing. He wants to make it all about that thing, this all-consuming battle, whatever it is that you're going through. Maybe some of you, it's, it's change, it's transition. And you can't see anything but that. Or maybe it's a child and they're not walking in the right way and you just consume with that battle and you're not seeing that God is actually refining you in the process. I've gone through two battles with two different kids and I've still got a couple to go, you know. And God, the Bible says, train up a child in the way they should go and when they get old, they will not depart. But what it doesn't say is God makes an intercessor out of the parent between young and old. See, something he's doing in us in the midst of that, Satan wants to sift us like wheat, but guess what? God makes that okay because the wheat that comes out of that looks like and tastes like Jesus Christ. See, the devil is still God's devil and he only gets to do what he has permission to do. And today I wanna tell you something that God, God is doing something great inside you. Let me close by sharing this passage. This is a very beautiful passage. You probably know it, Isaiah 61 and verse one. The writer says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord in the day of vengeance of our God. Now listen to this, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. Some translations say, giving them a crown of beauty in exchange for ashes. You know what ashes are? Ashes are the residue that's left over after something is completely destroyed. I even contemplated bringing ashes up on the stage, but I just didn't know what that would do to my hands, you know. Ashes are what's left over after something is completely burned up. After something is totally destroyed, you have ashes left over. You know what ashes are? They're absolutely nothing. And here's what this word says. It says that God will take our ashes and he will exchange it for a crown of beauty. You know what this means? 
that God can take our failure and we can rise up out of the failure and something beautiful will emerge because of what Jesus does. It says that God can take those destroyed places, those places of our failure, and we may not know it when we're going through it. We may not know it when the burning is happening when the trial is going on and it seems like there's rubble, it seems like there's nothing left over and we give those ashes to God and he says, in exchange for this nothing, I will give you something that you could never earn and you do not deserve because that's who he is. And Jesus is praying for this kind of exchange over our lives right now. You say, well, Ben, what is Jesus praying over my life right now? Tell me where your tension is. Tell me where your difficulty is. Tell me where your temptation is. Tell me where your trial is. Jesus is praying for you in the midst of your trial. If you want a revelation about what God is doing in your life today, I can tell you, he is not just praying that you get out of it. He is praying that you become more like him through it. And whatever that thing is, the enemy is trying to exploit and manipulate. I can tell you that Jesus is gonna flip that thing around, even if it's a temptation. You might be tempted in some things and God is bringing forth a purity. He always, he always uses what the enemy's trying to do because he overplays his hand. The enemy overplays his hand. And here's the truth that we know as I, as I close. We say this and we pray this, but friends, I wanna tell you, we're gonna prophesy it too because it is biblical truth. We say, you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it to good, amen? You take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. What I just showed you today is that is a biblical reality. It is not just a good song. It's not just a saying. It's not just patting somebody on the back in a hard time saying, hey, God takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it to good. That is the truth of God's word and only he can do that in our lives. Jesus is praying that whatever the enemy is doing it gets turned into good. And all we have to do is align ourselves with the prayer of Jesus. And so we look up today and we say, Lord, what are you praying over my life? What am I missing? When you say to me, you say, Ben, Ben, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that as you go through this, that you would be restored and you would strengthen your brothers, that you would be stronger and a more capable counselor and minister in the hands of God on the other end of your trial. Amen. Isn't that good news today? Ashes for beauty. Ashes for beauty. Would you stand? Let's stand in the presence of God today. Let's exchange our ashes for the beauty that God gives. If you're going through a trial or a struggle and maybe the battle is ever before you right now, I want you to do something as we pray. I want you to in your own hands, I want you to take the ashes of this situation, of this trial, of your feelings, of where you're at right now, and not to diminish how you feel, not to minimize what you're going through, but take those ashes and exchange them right now because the Bible says that he will. The Bible says that he will. We give our ashes to him and he gives us something better. So let's do that as we pray. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus that you are praying. Lord, you're praying for us right now. You're praying us through something and you promise us that on the other side, we're gonna be unlike we could ever see. We are gonna be more like you. And so we pray as we offer to you our ashes, Lord, we pray that you would exchange it with a beautiful crown, something that it mesmerizes us. We can't even believe we have it. 
We know we couldn't earn it. We didn't deserve it, but you give it to us. You put it on our heads so that we can walk with dignity and we can rise up out of our failure and we can do whatever you call us to do. I thank you that your purpose on us does not change no matter what situation we find ourselves in life and that in the midst of it, you're refining us. And so I pray, Lord, not just a hedge of protection around us, although sometimes that's okay, but I pray today that you would perfect us and not just protect us. I pray that you would prune us and not just cause us to flourish. I pray that whatever you see fit to do, whatever you need to do in us to make us more like you, I pray, Lord, that you would do that. But Lord, would you help us to know that that's what's happening? Just like you told Peter, I pray that you would tell us right now, that's what you're doing. And so we thank you for it today. We glorify you in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen and amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.